Are you frustrated with your government contracting journey? Do you feel like there's just something missing in your business, but you just can't put your finger on it? Are you finding enough opportunities? Are you struggling to win the few opportunities you do find? Do you have a plan of attack or a strategy for this market? Would you like somebody to review your current approach? Maybe it's time to consider getting a coach. Our team of coaches have helped our clients win over $13.6 billion in government contracts. We've figured out how to help companies just like you accelerate in this market. Market. If you want to find out if coaching is for you, go to federal-access.com forward slash govcon coaching today and fill out a coaching application. I will personally respond to your application and schedule a time for us to talk about your business. There's no cost for the session. There's no obligation. There's no hard sell or anything like that. What I will guarantee you is I will review your top challenges and give you detailed advice. And if coaching makes sense for you, I'll walk through your options. Visit federal-access.com forward slash govcon coaching today to get started. Now let's get into this episode. Welcome to Game Changers for Government Contractors. Game Changers is dedicated to helping you position for and win more government contracts. And now your hosts, Josh and Mike. Hey everybody, Michael Lejeune here and I will be your host today on Game Changers. We have a great episode for you today. We're going to be talking about SF-330s. Now, I'm sure a lot of people's eyes just kind of roll back in their head because, you know, we're getting the proposal talk and all those kind of things. But I assure you this is going to be a great, fun episode. Not only that, it's a very important topic. And our guest today, Carrie Ann Williams, uh, who is the president of Andana Consulting, is going to talk to us about the importance of this form, how to fill it out, and just how this can help you through this whole process. So with that, welcome, Carrie. Why don't you take a minute and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Thank you so much, Mike, for having me on again. Um, my company, Andana Consulting, is a proposal writing and marketing services firm, and we work exclusively with professional services organizations, many of which do business with the federal government, but also at the state and local level. Uh, so our opportunities to work with folks are to help them write proposal responses in response to solicitations that come out at that federal, state, and local level. Uh, but then we also do B2B marketing services, which involves anything from trade show design to collateral development and digital marketing. Cool. Very cool. And, you know, here's something I want to point out, you know, and, and Carrie didn't pay me to say this you know no, none of the guests ever do but you know we only have people on the show here that we really believe in what they do and how they do it and one of the few things and I, I'm, you may not know this one of the few things we ever recommend to people is that they ever hire an outside proposal person like it's one of the few things we say no you shouldn't do it now when we do recommend it we always recommend you um, you're always the, the person that we recommend and one of the reasons is you you specialize in the areas that you do. I mean, you talked about working with service companies and at the different levels and stuff. And there's so many companies out there that are so broad that will work with anyone under the sun that it really dilutes the service they provide. And that's one of the things we really love about the way you work is just how you specialize in what you do and you just do it really, really well. So, you know, I, that's my quick plug up front for any of the people that are listening today that need this type of service. This is the company that you want to talk to about that. So that that's my plug for you today uh, on that. Why don't we jump in 
and kind of I, I want to let you set the stage on what is an SF three thirty. What's the history of this form, and you know why is it used? Excellent. Thank you so much for those kind words. Uh, we really love the niche that we work in, and it um, it helps us to do the best work that we can for our clients. Um, and in that is creating these SF-330 forms. Um, for the architecture and engineering profession, it is the form that is used to respond to government solicitations. Um, often they're called pre-solicitations because it's just qualifications based. Uh, some of your listeners probably know about the Brooks Act and the Brooks Act procurement is for the design services at requires that they are qualifications-based and not fee-based uh, selection processes. Um, so the SF-330 form came out in 2004, and it replaced a two forms called the SF-254 and the SF-255. Um, the 330 is a revamped version of those. Uh, it's completely different. Uh, it includes qualifications uh, in part one, which includes your teaming partners, your resumes, the project examples that you're going to use, and then a narrative component. It really focuses on relationships. Um, they added a requirement that you must include an org chart and also a Section G matrix. Section G is part of the SF330. And it's a matrix that crosswalks the personnel that you're submitting with the projects that you're submitting. And so in theory, the reviewers can look at this matrix and see that your team has in fact worked together on projects that are similar to what you're proposing on. Um, they can be used for project-specific contracts. Maybe it's a, a standalone barracks design or an IDIQ, IDC type contract for an on-call arrangement for design services. Uh, so the SF-330 form is what the uh, engineering and architecture profession use to submit their qualifications to these government solicitations. Um, they've evolved over the years. There's actually the newest version is dated 2016, had some minor changes from that original 2004 and then a 2013 update. Um, and over the years since 20, 2004, uh, we've really evolved in how we use them. The agencies are becoming much more precise in providing directions in terms of number of personnel that they want to see or um, number of the types of projects that they want. Um, and also industry is doing more to customize and brand the forms so that it, it tells the story of their firm a little bit better. Yeah, I, I think that's great. You know, and when you normally think government forms, you normally think a lot of red tape and issues, but th this seems like a form that is actually drawing out the best of your company and highlighting what can make you different and why they should choose you. You know, it, it's, it sounds like a really good form that, that people should really understand. And just hearing you talk about a, a very little bit that you have so far, uh, you know, you have such a great understanding for it. I'm, I'm really anxious as we dive into the form, kind of what your insights are on, on how to, like you said, customize it and brand it and, and all that type of thing. So before we get into that, you know, I'm sure dealing with this and, and all the companies that you do and clients, I'm sure you also talk to agencies. So when you talk to the agencies, what's the most common feedback you hear from them ab about this form submission? That's a great question. Um, 
We do a lot of work with the agencies and sometimes we're talking to them through a debrief for a proposal that we've submitted with a client. Um, and sometimes we're just having a dialogue with them uh, just to get feedback. We also attend industry days and things like that where agencies present and provide their best practices for filling out these forms. And if anyone on listening writes proposals, they hear this all the time and it's that you need to follow the instructions. And I find this to be really amazing to me that that firms would put the time and effort in to respond to any kind of solicitation, whether it's a standard form submission or a C contract or any other format that's required, whether it's state, local, federal, or even private, that you wouldn't follow the instructions. Um, and so when the agencies say this, they're really talking about the very specific things that they're asking for. Um, I think I mentioned earlier that they're evolving in how they use the form. Um, I was the very first SF three thirty I ever submitted was in two thousand and five, the year after it was brand new. We didn't have a lot of parameters from the agency that we submitted to, and we ended up having this gigantic, over 100-page response. Um, it was for an IDC-type contract, but still, that's a lot for an agency to have to read and review. So now they've become more precise. They're saying, we only want these 10 labor categories, and we want two resumes for, per each labor category, and we only want 10 pages in the narrative section, which is section H. If you don't follow those instructions and you submit three resumes or only one resume, you're not compliant with what they're asking for. Or if your 10-page narrative is now 20 pages, then you're also not compliant and they're not able to really review it. They're also asking for some very specific things in terms of qualifications because, again, this is a qualifications-based response, and they're looking for the most qualified firms. They're not racking and stacking. They're not grading them. There's not a numeric. You know, you don't get an A or a B or a 90%. The uh, evaluation committee really sits and reads all of these word for word, and they want to see what they asked for. So sometimes they might be as precise as asking for a structural engineer with um, seismic capability and that they understand how to do evaluations per some specific criteria, maybe ASCE SEI 31-03. They also might be asking for you to demonstrate that you've got project experience in certain categories, that you can provide plans and specs following the uniform code. If you don't write those specific references like ASCE or UFC in your project description or on your resume, the evaluators don't know that your people have this experience. And so again, those are the instructions that they're asking us to follow to get that content to them that they can read and understand. Without it, they don't understand that you know how to do the work. You really have to show them and demonstrate exactly what they're asking for. Um, and sometimes I think it, responders get caught up in the form doesn't have a special place to show cost control or compliance with schedule. Maybe they ask for that. So you have to make it easy on them, put it in a call out box, maybe highlight the keyword, something like that that's going to help the agency reviewers look at it. Because, again, it's a committee that's looking at it. Um, they also really don't want a lot of fluff. Uh, the form, as you indicated, Michael, is 
very clear in what they're looking for. And it is supposed to make it easy on the industry to submit and on the government to review it. And so if you follow what the form is asking for, there's not a lot of space to to brag a lot about your company. You really have to give them what they're asking for right up front and very clearly. And so that those are some of the feedbacks that we get a lot is following those instructions and eliminating the fluff. Uh, I, I, I find it hilarious and yet so true. I, I knew that was one of those things where people can't follow instructions. You know, you have grown adults that are running businesses or running proposal divisions or whatever it may be. And there's probably somebody listening here saying, well, you know, they didn't necessarily need that. Or, you know, they're thinking in their head, oh, well, I don't know why they're harping on this issue. Well, it's a big issue. You know, if you can't follow instructions in a proposal, how are you going to follow instructions on the job? You know, like that's just not it's not going to work. I always, you know, tell people this is like the first step in a job interview because that's what it is. You're trying to get work. You're trying to get a job for your team. And if you can't follow the basic instructions on the front end, it's a very clear indicator to the hiring firm how you're going to work together. And if, if they're trying to give instructions and you're giving, you know, like you said, rambling pages for 20, you know, 20 or so pages when they only wanted 10 or giving them less than what they wanted with resumes or way more than they wanted or focusing on something that's important to you but not important to the customer, it, that's a very subliminal message to them this is how our relationship is going to be forever you know we're not going to communicate the same level i'm going to ask for things and i'm not going to get it it's a huge turnoff and i i think that's a big point there to me of, of you talking about the instructions of you've got to be able to follow basic instructions um yeah because if you do all of the other thing you know if you make it pretty if you put you know information in there that you think is going to help you or some of the stuff they're asking for but you didn't follow any of the instructions, then you, you've kind of done it for no reason. I, am, am I right there or am I crazy thinking that? No, I completely agree. When I hear this feedback uh, following the instructions, I, it kind of makes my head spin because I agree with you. If if you're going to invest all this time and energy in putting this together and they ask for 10 resumes and you give them six because that's what you think they want – then yeah, you're just not communicating with them. And for qualifications-based selections, you know, there's they they have several gates internally once the submissions are received. So sometimes the contracting officer will go through and make sure everything's compliant, that you've met those page limits, that you've got signatures on the forms that require forms, that you know, you've got the right contract number on there, all of those things that need to be compliant, they might check that first. They might not. It depends on how their process is. And it varies from agency to agency. Um, but then I was talking with a, a colleague at uh, an age, a local agency here in Maryland, and, and she said she likes to think of the pre-selection board, which is the, the board that convenes once the uh, proposals are received. And they go through, and she calls it the go-no-go no go board. And they're looking at it to look for those compliance things again do you have the right page limits? Can I skim a resume and see, yeah, I asked for an electrical engineer. You gave me an electrical engineer that has the registration, that's got the years of experience. Check check that box and move on. They're looking for that. And they, they go through every single response that they receive. And it can be 20 or 30 submissions at a time. And then they 
uh, narrow those down because they're looking for those firms that are not qualified. So if you're not, if they ask for 10 resumes and you're only giving them six, they're not going to deem you as qualified. And again, yeah, if they're looking to engage with you on a five-year contract, they want to know that you can communicate clearly. Um, and so if they're asking for one thing and you're giving them another, that's like you said, Michael, just an indicator that you're, you're not going to be working well together. Yeah. They also sometimes have an interview process. And again, it varies from agency and contract type. But, you know, if you get to be one of the most, if they you get into the final pool of most qualified firms, they often do an interview. And that's another opportunity to follow the instructions and to present your team as a cohesive team and to build that relationship because that's your opportunity to meet face-to-face or at least have a phone call and see if you're, there's good connection and that you can communicate clearly. Because if you're working with somebody for the next five years, you want to make sure that it's going to go well as best you can through this prescriptive process. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I like the word you said, you know, they're, they're looking for the qualified and, and, you know, the flip side, the unqualified companies through this process, because, you know, if you only submit six resumes and they ask for 10, and there's other companies that submitted 10, they're more qualified. They followed the instructions more to the letter. You know, again, this is nothing against anybody listening, but you deserve to be kicked out of the process if you're not meeting the standard that the other companies are meeting. Even if you're a great company who does an outstanding job, if you're not meeting the level they've asked for, then I think it's your responsibility to not only recognize that, but to fix it, to recognize, hey, we're short four resumes. What are we going to do about that to bridge that gap? That's your responsibility as the company. It's not theirs as the reviewer to say, oh, well, I think they're a really good company. Let's put them in the exception pile. You know, they probably don't have an exception <laughs> pile, you know, or they've done some really good work. So we're going to overlook that they only did 75% of what we asked in this form. You know, we're going to overlook that. You know, that's not their responsibility to do that. That's yours as the company. And so anyhow, you know, it's really, really good points there. I, I like that stuff. So you're, you're talking a little bit about branding and customization, that sort of thing. And I know there are people that are listening that say, well, it, it's a government form. So how creative can you get with that? So what's your response to that? So over the years, like I said, the Form has definitely evolved and industry has taken it upon themselves to improve the government form. Uh, and when I say that, it's mostly because the form is issued, if anyone goes on to look at it, um, from GSA, you can download a PDF. It's black and white. Uh, it's Arial font. It's very plain. And I do remember the very first one that I ever did because it was kind of overwhelming. And I, like I said, it was very huge. <laughs> you know, we didn't take any real liberties with the form. I think we added our logo. Um, and of course we put a cover on it, but there wasn't a lot of customization that we did to it. And now we see firms doing a lot with it. So for those of you familiar with the SF 330 submission, you know, there's a format on the, the very first page, um, where you list your company information and then all of your sub consultant information, you know, and firms are really telling a story there where they're, uh, it's not required unless the solicitation says it, but on the form it's not to add in things like which firms are service disabled, which are hub zone, uh, so that you're immediately telling the reviewer that 
your team is committed to using small businesses without them having to go read that in the last part of the narrative. Um, and you're maybe we're putting in the logos of those different firms on there so you can get some brand recognition for the, the subs that you're using. Um, the resume forms, most of the time, those are very straightforward because they're they're only allowed five projects per resume. So you don't want to do a lot of branding on that because you want to use that space for telling the project experience story. Uh, but you might add some color to the, the header and the footer to brand it with the rest of the, the document. Uh, when we get to the project pages, um, if you look at the PDF provided by GSA, it's just a blank form. There's there's space at the top for the project details, dates, and and um, reference information. And then it's just one giant box. So we get to play with that. Um, we can add in photos. We can put in a call-out box. We can you know, do two columns sometimes to add more information to that project page and also get them more of the story. Because a project page, especially for architects, without a picture on it is really boring. So we want to make sure that we're adding in all of that. Um, and then the part H, that's our narrative section. That's the section where we um, get the opportunity to demonstrate our qualifications and um, respond to the evaluation criteria that's provided in the synopsis. And those we've seen evolve tremendously. People are using infographics. They're using a lot of charts and graphs and tables because, again, they're getting pretty precise on the number of pages that we're allowed and no longer are we allowed a hundred pages for a narrative it talks about how great we are we they only want to see you know what they're asking for what experience do you have working in this location what is your commitment to small business do you have capacity to handle this type of project or this number of task orders and so we're doing that in a much more visual representation now then, you know, previously there was just a lot of, of narrative explaining all of these things. So, so now firms are really taking the, you know, the layout of that section H is really evolving into becoming a easy to read, well-branded, very concise document that the reviewers can get what they need just by looking at the page, almost skimming it. Um, and we're seeing that in proposals across you know, whether it's an SF-330 format or not. But the SF-330 form, because it's a government form, you know, we, we don't want to take too much liberty with it. We're not going to rearrange the layout of the form. We're not going to move the boxes, you know, change where they are on the page. But within the constraints of that format, we are taking a lot of opportunity to use color, use different fonts, use the call-out boxes to add a brand to it. Yeah, and you know, you hit uh, on the last point there. You hit on exactly the, the follow-up question I was going to ask about, and you know, how does someone know what they can and can't change? And you, you you talked a little bit about that by not rearranging the form, you know, but taking you know liberties with colors and call-out boxes and different things like that. I I think that's one of the important things about working with somebody who is a specialist. You know, if, if I were to say hire a firm who does proposals for just anybody. They may not even work on this form. The The first time I hire them may be the first time or maybe the second or third time they did one of these forms. But having a specialty like you do, you actually know the ins and outs, what you can, what you can't 
modify on that, what makes sense, and what's going to tell the story. Because you, you've used that phrase a few times, how to tell the story. And, you know, I'll give the, the simplest example I can think of is when I used to read to my kids when they were little, you know, whether it's the Dr. Seuss books or whatever, you know, whatever book it was. There was always words on the page, but there were other things on the page, whether it was images or arrows pointing to something that helped tell the story. And, you know, that's where where I think people are misunderstanding, um, you know, in their minds of, you know, what's the importance of a call out box? What's the importance of a font or a color or a logo or a whatever? And, And all those things tell the story. And tell the story of who you are and what you do, even to tell the story of how professional you are, you know, because if I were to look at one version of this and it's just plain, somebody's just plugged in information, um, you know, they've not really gone the extra mile. Then I look at yours and it's customized, it's detailed. I can tell you, you work in this area, you work in this arena, you're familiar with this form, you're familiar with the work we do, uh, it just says something about your company and its maturity. It, it tells a story of your maturity and which is a story within the story, right? You know, not, not just about trying to win the job, but why you're really qualified to win the job and what kind of work you're going to do by how you know this form. And so I said, I wasn't going to plug you guys again, but I think I did just there, but so <laughs> kind of, kind of plugging the, how important it is to work with a specialist who understands the things you're talking about. Like I would have never thought about the call out boxes and different pieces that you're again, cause you work with this form and I don't, I was telling you before we got started, I'm, I'm fortunate that, you know, I'm on the sales and marketing side of, of our firm and Josh is, a, you know, knee deep in the proposals and direct with the client side of the firm. And so I don't have to ever mess with these things. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's, that's, it's just so important to tell a compelling story because you have such a limited time to do it. And so you're, you're hinting here a, a lot about, what I would relate to formatting issues, which, you know, we all know are a big issue with proposals. So outside of branding the form, do you have any other guidance for prepping the SF-330s? Yes. And I I think this is a great follow-on to what you were just saying about the storytelling. And and we've alluded to that a couple of times here. Like you, you said, the storytelling when you're looking at a government form, it looks like, how can I possibly tell a story? I only have one eight and a half, one eight and a half by 11 inch page to complete the boxes that they require. And then I get part of that page to tell my story. And part of that goes back to the wind themes that you have for your response. And, you know, if your wind theme is that your personnel of the 10 that they're asking for exceed the criteria that they're asking, right? They want everyone to have five years experience and a license in their discipline and a degree in their discipline. Um, and all of your guys have master's degrees and, and they're, and they've got multiple registrations, then you're exceeding that requirement and you need to be able to, that's part of your story, right? If you've got, they ask for 10 projects and you have 10 projects that are all exactly what they're looking for and then you're maybe exceeding that requirement because you're not pulling anything in that's like adjacent to what they're asking for. Um, If you're, one of the criteria is small business participation and you've got more than they want. They want 30 and you're going to give them 45% participation and you can explain that in your story. Then those are the things that you need to bring to the top, right? Like 
if you're showing that you're going to use 30, more than 30% small business participation and you've got 10 resumes and you've got four of them from your small business partners, that's emphasizing that story. So there's a lot of moving parts on these that allow you to <clears throat> use the form as it's designed, but to really get your messages out there. Um, and within those constraints, you know, you want to make sure that you're giving them what they ask for on each form. Um, the resume form, for example, asks for the degree and their specialization. You don't need to add in the school name. You don't need to add in the year they graduated. Same with the registrations. They ask for the state in which they're registered and the discipline in which they're registered. Unless the solicitation requests it, you don't need to put the license number or the um, expiration date or anything like that. The caveat is, of course, they sometimes ask for those things, and that goes back to our original discussion of following the instructions. Now, if the solicitation asks for it, it trumps what's on the form. If they want their the, the license number, give it to them. Um, you know, best practices are one page per resume, one page per project, and again, that's a little daunting when you're like, ah, oh, but this guy has 35 years of experience, and I only get to show five projects, so selecting those projects, getting the narrative of those projects about what they did on that job, what their role was. If they are lead architect in your proposal, they should be lead architect on the project that you're showing on their resume. If they're lead commissioning agent, then they should be the commissioning agent on those projects so that the reviewers are immediately seeing, okay, this woman has the right experience as the commissioning agent. She's done five commissioning agent projects where she was in that role. And so they're not guessing. If you, one of the things, another um, piece of feedback that I didn't mention earlier is that industry titles are often different from the titles that are requested in the solicitation. And so they might ask for lead mechanical engineer. So your lead mechanical engineer is also a project manager. In your firm, he's probably called a project manager. So on your in your resume, you might call him project manager and then describe the project that he was that he worked on. But you're submitting him in this response as the lead mechanical engineer. Um, when it, when the government reads that, they see project manager and they don't make the connection that he's also the lead mechanical engineer on that job. So you want to make sure that you're changing those roles from project manager to lead mechanical engineer, and then describing the mechanical engineering that he did for that project. Um, it's a little nuanced, but it helps the reviewers know that this guy is doing this work and that if he, because sometimes in their wor world, project management is distinctly different from the engineering role. And so you make that easy for them to, to make those connections. Um, yeah, what what a great point there. You know, I think that hits on something we talk about with people all the time where we have internal and external titles and you know the the external title is whatever it needs to be. You know, it it's it's not like you're lying or fudging the facts or anything like that. That is the truth. It just happens to be they're calling it something different. That's all it is. And it's the mm -hmm. exact same thing. And so we're just trying to speak apples to apples. That's all we're trying to do here. And so what what a great suggestion there, which kind of leads me to what are some of the common mistakes that people make when they're preparing this? Because I, I would think that's a common mistake right there of, you know, not 
you know, making those titles the same, just like you said, you know, lead mechanical engineer versus project manager. Somebody scans that and goes, wow, they don't even have a lead mechanical engineer in this thing. Kick them out. You know, let's throw, you know, let's throw them out. What, what are some of the other common mistakes? Yeah, that, I think that's exactly what happens from time to time because they just don't make the connection. Whereas in industry, we're like, well, yeah, he's he's the lead me- mechanical engineer. He's the overseeing the project, so he's project manager. His title within the firm might be division chief. None of those make any sense, so just make it consistent. And I think that consistency is really one of the most common mistakes. Um, you know, inconsistencies, if you have a project title – that you have on your lead mechanical engineer's resume and you call it Army Corps, Baltimore, Aberdeen Proving Ground Fire Station. But then you're showing that project in the section F, which is your project section, and you call it Aberdeen Fire Station. And then you get to section G where you have to list the projects again and you call it USACE Baltimore Fire Station. Well, those inconsistencies make it really hard on the evaluator to understand what's going on. So make those project titles the same across the board. Uh, Make sure that if your roles, again, lead mechanical engineer, if that's what you're calling him on the resume, that's what lines back with the synopsis of what they request. That's what's showing up on your org chart. That's what's showing up on your section G where you put the person's name and their role you're calling them the same thing throughout. Um, if you've got, again, back to the uh, fire station project, in your resume, you say it was a $35 million project, but in your section F, you say it was a $22 million project. Those are inconsistencies that need to be caught before you submit the, you know, get those um, data points correct so that there's Again, the reviewers are able to compare apples to apples. Um, We talked a lot about the story. You know, if you're not talking to the agency about how you're going to solve their problems and how your process is going to make their lives easier once they start working with you, um, you know, they're not able to, if you're just putting in a lot of fluff and a lot of testimonials, but you're not telling them how you're going to do the job, they're not really able to understand what's going to be like to work with you. Um, They also don't want you to spend all that time talking about yourself. They don't want pages and pages of, you know, your firm testimonials. They can look that up. They can go to CPARS and see what, what kind of work that you've done. So give them enough to, again, complete that story, but don't spend a lot of time just talking about yourself. And then just being incomplete, not having the signatures in the right place, not having um, the uh, things in the right order or not providing, again, the resumes that they asked for or the the selection criteria that they ask for. You know, again, they're getting really precise in what they want. So be really precise in what you give back to them. If they want, if they have seven selection criteria, you better be answering all seven selection criteria. Yeah, no, really good. And and I, I think a lot of people say, well, this is really common sense. Well, it may sound like common sense, but the reason we're talking about it is a lot of people don't do this. <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of people don't do this. I, I can't tell you how often I hear people who they don't submit the right forms or I, there was, I was talking to somebody the other day and they had done different versions and 
I do everything in one document when I'm creating a version of something and we may um, occasionally save it as a different version because there was something special about it. But I usually have one document that I'm editing. But somebody I was talking to the other day submitted like the like change five of seven. They didn't submit change seven of seven. So it was like 75 percent complete, you know, is what you're saying. So they didn't review what they were submitting before they submitted it, you know, or even we talked we had a client the other day that was talking to us that had been working on a project for like six weeks and they submitted the proposal six minutes late. <gasps> six, oh. <laughs> six weeks of work up in smoke for six minutes, you know, and it's just one of those things. It's like, come on, you know, and, and again, it's, it seems like such a common thing that we've talked about today, but I guarantee you every single one, if you're a listener to this, every thing, single thing we've talked about so far today, it is something you've got to have either on a checklist or somebody out on the team has got to be watching to make sure this is done because it, it'll be the, the one project that you should win where you forget one thing and that's the one you lose it because you forgot something that you should have done or you made one of these common mistakes or, or whatever it may be. So we, we hear it all the time. So do you have anything to add to that? I was just going to say, yes, the, the 330 forms too, and we didn't touch on this at all. They include a part two and the part two is a single page sheet. That is a summary. It's a snapshot of the firm. It's the, the personnel within the firm and the the types of projects that you do. It also captures a revenue ranges that you've had over the last three years. Um, that's one of the forms that needs to be signed. You also need one of those forms for every single office that you're submitting. So if you have a teaming partner and they only have one office, you have one part two for that office. But if you have a firm on your team and you're using three or four of their offices because they're nationwide and you have resumes from three offices. So you'd want three of those part two forms to align with those resumes. That's a whole different discussion, Mike, but those forms all have to be in there and they have to be referenced in the section C and then they have to be signed and they have to be included in your response. You know, and those are the types of things that can really, you know, you have to allow yourself time at the end to do that proofreading and that quality control check, print it out, look at it, make sure everything is where it needs to be because we do so many of these and those little nitpicky things at the end can really just, I mean, they, they can make or break that response. So if you're missing a part two, you might technically could be disqualified. Now, hmm. again, that doesn't happen all the time, but if you're supposed to have five of them and you only have four, then you're technically not compliant. So those are the things you have to build in that time to to do to print it out and do a book check. No matter how great you think it is, like there might be there's a glitch somewhere yeah. because we're all human and yeah. and these forms prove that. <laughs> yeah, and you know, took the words literally right out of my mouth. That was actually what I was going to say at at the very end here is not only are we human, but the reviewers are human. And what does that mean? That means they're all going to be a little bit different. And somebody who may judge you really strict on on one contract, then you go to somebody else and they may like, oh, well, they, they've got four out of five. I think that's fine. <laughs> you know, that may have, <laughs> but that doesn't mean 
you, that you are going to get leniency for being, you know, non-compliant or that you deserve it. You know, it's just one of those things where every, the reviewers are human. You're human. We all make mistakes. You know, this is just a way to ensure you make less mistakes, you know, by going through this process. So as we start to wrap up here and, you know, I give you kind of some final thoughts here. What are some of the big game changers you have for getting this done, getting it done right? And uh, any other final thoughts you have? I think keeping in mind that the reviewers are human is maybe the best advice from this is that, you know, we're trying to make it easy on them. Again, the forms were designed to make it easy so that they could, you know, the resume format is the resume format. They're looking at mine. They're looking at yours. They're all consistent across the board so they can easily find, you know, where the registrations are, where the years of experience are. So as they've, go through 20 different versions of these in, in their review process, they can quickly turn to it and say, yep, I'm, I really want to make sure their org chart has all the right people on it. They can just turn to that page. Everybody's org chart is in the same location and they can just review, review, review. So we want to make it also really easy on them. So highlighting keywords from the synopsis in our resumes, in our project sheets, in the section H so that they can see if they're looking for a, a UFC criteria code that your team has experience with, then you've got it in bold right there on the page. They can't miss it. If they're looking for that seismic code we mentioned earlier, it's bold. It's on the page. It's on three different people's resumes. You guys are qualified to do that work. Um, the call out boxes we mentioned, if there's, they're looking for projects that have lead and, uh, uh, ATFP and renovations and additions and, you know, new roof. And you've got projects that check all those boxes, put a box in there and check all those boxes for them. So they can flip to that project sheet. They'll look at that call out box and they'll say, yep, they've got lead, they've got ATFP and they've got a new roof. That's what I'm looking for. Um, so that they don't have to, if they're doing that pre-solicitation, um, that, that might be called the go, no go board, the go, no go board sees that. And then you're, you're moved on to the qualified pile. Um, and then crosswalking, the resumes have those five projects on them. And then you've got 10 projects that you're submitting in your project section. If you're, if you've got resumes, projects on resumes that you're also showing in that project section, tell them that. So if you're a lead mechanical engineers, that fire station project is on his resume and it's your first project in section F, tell them that put a little, a little note in, in italics that says project number one, section F number one. And that way they know, again, they're seeing that crosswalk that your people have experience on the projects that these are your best people. These are your best projects. They've done them together. And so that again, reinforces your qualification. Um, and back again to that humanity thing, mistakes are made in the synopsis sometimes, or clarifications need to happen and take advantage of Q and a periods and attending industry days. If they ask for 10 resumes, but they forget one of the key, we're actually working on one right now. They want two commissioning projects, but, um, they didn't ask for a commissioning agent resume. So we, we had to ask that question because, why would they want projects without a resume? Uh, those are the kind of things that you want to take advantage of being able to ask the government for clarification. 
go to the industry days, um, get to know what it is that they're really looking for in these responses so that you can be as strong as you can be. If there's confusion in what they're asking for, or you want more clarification or there's a conflict, the Q&A period is, is the time to do that um, so that you can make your response the strongest. Because as you mentioned, you're spending a lot of time putting this together and you don't want to just make assumptions oh, well, they didn't ask for it, so they must not want it. And then you get to a debrief and they say, well, we would have loved a commissioning agent resume. And you didn't know because you didn't ask that question. So I, I would uh, encourage everyone, whether it's a 3.30 or any response, to, to use that period to their advantage. Yeah, uh, really, really good stuff there. And, you know, the, the final thought I'll have just from listening to you today is, you know, not only are these people human, they're also not detectives, you know, th th that's, that's not on there. You know, it's not like they all come out of the Intel division where they're trained in cryptology like I am where, you know, and even though I am, I don't like looking for all that stuff. I don't like looking at like when we do, we do a lot of resume stuff reviews. And when I go and look through it, I'm like, I have no idea what this person's done. And I don't know why they're submitting a resume for this other than maybe unemployment requires them to submit three resumes a day. And that's what they're doing. Like, I can't figure out what's going on here. You know, like they're not detectives and it's not their job to figure out what's in your response. It's your job to communicate clearly what's going on. And I love the idea of, you know, if, if they're wanting projects, projects that that check five boxes, put the little call out where it has all five in the check. I love that idea. Little stuff like that. So they don't have to play detective. They don't have to look and see, are you qualified? And I love the, the, the concept earlier about, you know, the consistency, making sure when you call a project, something that's what you call it everywhere. Cause there's nothing more frustrating than saying, I think this project is the same but they're labeled differently and I don't I don't know what's going on. Again, they're not detectives. They shouldn't have to put on that hat. It should just be simple for them. So so thank you for all the wisdom today. I really appreciate everything you've brought to the table on this. And I think this is a great topic for anybody in this industry to go back and listen to and uh, just a wealth of information. Before we take off today, I wanna to ask everyone a simple question. Are you feeling stuck? in your government business? Do you feel like you should be winning a lot more contracts, but just can't figure out how to bust through to the next level? Do you want to accelerate your results and hit your goals faster? Does that describe you at all? If so, I have a very special offer for all of our listeners today. Visit us at rsmfederal.com slash breakthrough coaching, where you can schedule your very own business breakthrough session with me. You're going to walk away from the session with three things, a copy of the award-winning government sales manual, at least three strategies to supercharge your business and some specific answers to your biggest challenges that are out there. Now, normally these sessions run about $495, but for a limited time for our podcast listeners only, you can schedule this session at no cost to you. So that's zero cost to schedule a session with me. Simply visit rsmfederal.com forward slash breakthrough coaching 
and you'll be able to fill out an application. So scroll all the way to the bottom of that page, fill out an application that'll come directly to me. Then I'll reach out to you. We'll get our, our session scheduled and we'll walk through some of the challenges that you're having, whether it's you know how to grow the business, your goal setting, um, specific challenges you're having in government. This doesn't have to be just about specific to growing any business, but you're going to walk away from the session, not only understanding how to approach the government from a better perspective, but you're going to walk away with a lot of confidence on what you need to do, what next steps you need to take to supercharge your government business so you can take the next several months, the next several years to a whole new level. So again, visit us at rsmfederal.com forward slash breakthrough coaching. You can uh, get an overview of what Breakthrough Coaching is all about. Scroll all the way to the bottom, fill out the application that'll come to me, and then I'll schedule your session for you. And last but not least, let me take a moment here. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. We really appreciate your support. Remember, you can find every episode on iTunes. Just look for Game Changers for Government Contractors and subscribe to the feed to make sure you get every episode. And be sure to tune in next time for lessons from our experts on how you can win more government contracts. Thanks for listening to Game Changers for Government Contractors. For a full list of episodes and other resources, be sure and check us out on the web at www.rsmfederal.com slash gamechangers.